Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. President Zelensky slams Canada over Russia-bound gas turbine. Sanction exemptions will only embolden Moscow, the Ukrainian president says. Zelensky has argued that Canada's move to return a turbine required for a pipeline transporting Russian gas to Germany will be seen as, quote, weakness by Moscow. Is Zelensky's position a demonstration of desperation? Well, for insight, we turn to our first guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer and author of Disarmament in the Time of Perestroika, Arms Control and the End of the Soviet Union. He served in the Soviet Union as an inspector implementing the INF Treaty, served in General Schwarzkopf's staff during the Gulf War, and from 91 to 98, he was a chief weapons inspector with the U.N. in Iraq, Scott Ritter. As always, Scott, Welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me. So Zelensky said the uh, Ukrainian foreign ministry has summoned a Canadian envoy over the absolutely unacceptable decision to allow the return of a repaired turbine to Germany. The turbine is required for Nord Stream, the Baltic Sea pipeline that delivers gas from Russia to Germany. Scott, Zelensky seems to be acting as though he and his opinions really matter. Yeah, no, I, that's the problem with propping up um, a puppet. Um, and, you know, I mean, you know, Pinocchio needs to realize at the end of the day, he's not a boy. He's just made out of wood. Um, and, 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 and that's that's what Zelensky is. You know, we 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 the West collectively allowed this man to, uh, you know, speak to parliaments, speak to Congress, speak to heads of state as if he mattered, uh, as opposed to being the. Um, you know, comedian turned failed politician, um, leader of a corrupt nation that is engaged in a losing conflict with a uh, with a global power. Um, and so he believes that he is King Leonidas. He believes he's commanding the 300. He believes he is Winston Churchill and that the world is hanging on his every word, his every deed. Um, no, uh, Germany is about ready to undergo one of the greatest economic collapses in modern history. Um, key to that is uh, Germany's need for gas, cheap gas, the kind of gas that Russia provides, the kind of gas that Russia's not providing right now. And one of the reasons is that Russia says the Nord Stream 1 uh, pipeline is down for maintenance, uh, needs this turbine. That turbine's in Canada. Uh, Canada has fixed the turbine. That turbine needs to be returned to Germany, where they can install the turbine and get gas flowing again. Um, that's called reality. Uh, Zelensky lives in this dream world. Uh, and what he doesn't understand is that this posturing uh, will only further isolate him. There's already uh, Ukraine fatigue setting in. Um, the promises of a Ukrainian victory and a Russian defeat uh, have not manifested themselves. Ukraine is getting beaten, beaten badly. 
Russia is winning on all fronts, and the tens of billions of dollars of aid that is being squandered in Ukraine is starting to you know, have a political impact on the home fronts as the respective constituents of the nations that are providing this largesse are starting to question whether or not that's how their country and their politicians need to be spending their precious resources, especially the time when citizens are being asked not just to tighten their belt, but to lower their thermostats, to cut wood for the winter, and um, be prepared for, you know, the the the, the kind of um, digression in uh, economic standard of living that hasn't been experienced in Europe since the end of the Second World War. You know, Scott, early to, to go back for a couple months back, early in this during this conflict, I remember hearing you say that there's basically no way that any of these European governments are going to stand, that they will all fall. You know, we've been looking at this Sri Lanka thing where, you know, um, they're out of gas and out of fuel, you know, food and out of time. And, you know, the people are basically now swimming in the uh, swimming in the president's pool. It, and, and now we look at what's happening, you know, with the Dutch, with the farmers out and they're blocking. They've literally I think they like took stole the president's plane and towed it away with a tractor or something like that. I mean, craziness going on there, blocking airports, you know, does uh, the Sri Lankan mess? Is that kind of I mean, realistically, you wouldn't think so. Is that what we're eventually going to be seeing in Europe? Is it really going to get that bad, Scott? I think so. You know, unfortunately, um, you know, the, the, the thing about humanity is once you strip off the clothes, once you realize that underneath the different colored flesh is just blood and bones, um, that the, 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 the stomach works the same, whether you're an African, an Asian or a European, meaning you're going to get hungry when you're not fed. Um, the body's, you know, the, 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 the internal thermostat will tell you you're cold. Um, so, you know, we live under this illusion that white Europeans would never stoop to the level of those brown Sri Lankans. Look at the mob of wild brown people storming the press. We would never. Uh, trust me, the white people are going to do it, too. And um, it, it's, it's going to happen. Uh, crazy white people is going to become the new meme, and I don't mean to make a joke of it, but it's real. Uh, Italy, Germany, the Netherlands, uh, throughout Europe, you're going to see uh, the, the halls of power stormed by a people desperate to survive. This isn't about, you know, Hans not getting to drive his third Mercedes. Uh, this is about Hans staring his wife in the face, trying to explain while their two-year-old is screaming from hunger, from cold, from exhaustion, and there's not a damn thing he can do about it because his government has signed on to this ridiculous policy of sanctioning Russia that has resulted in the German economy committing suicide. And when that happens, Hans is going to the street. And so is Franz, and so is everybody else with a Germanic name. Um, it's just—it's going to happen. Well, crazy white folks, Scott, have already stormed the Capitol on January sixth. So, yeah, but they weren't. But they weren't. Uh, I, again, 
They oh, I, I, oh no, 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 no! I know, I know their motivations were. To- I know their motivations were different. I, I got that. I'm just saying because when hungry, because when, when hungry, crazy white folks storm the the Capitol, people are dying. <laughs> but you know, people one, might get eaten. One of the things I want to, I want to, I want to point out, and you can respond if you want to. Ukraine is off the front page of the paper now. And, and Garland, we were talking about Good this point. last week, that when you look at the Washington Post, when you look at the New York Times, now it's about the January 6th committee. It's about the photographs from the new telescope that show us, you know, 10 billion years in the past. Ukraine is not is not on the front page of the paper. U.S. claims Iran ready to send hundreds of drones to Russia. Training for Russian troops to pilot Iranian drones may start this month, according to a U.S. official. Of course, there's an awful lot of supposition. There's an awful lot of of hedging in the statements that are coming out of the administration. Well, they may do this. They're not sure yet. But again, the headline still, Iran sending Drones to Russia and then Moon of Alabama. No, Iran will not deliver armed drones to Russia. Uh, your thoughts, Scott Ritter? I'm with Moon Alabama on this. Um, you know, Russia is a world leader in drone technology. Uh, they just don't export them like uh, the, you know the United States and others do. Um, the Russian military, uh, you know, the, the drone is a weapon system, um, <laughs> which requires. Not just that you fly it, but you maintain it, that it, it, it's in your system. You're, you need to have industries that you can go back to uh, to improve the system, repair the system, etc. The last thing Russia is going to do, Russia is not a third world nation. That's is what Jake Sullivan, who is the man who is spreading this lie. Remember, Jake Sullivan works for the National Security Council. The National Security Council has said, we deliberately release BS <laughs> and call it intelligence. Uh, to shape perception. Putin is getting ready to meet with the heads of Iran and the heads of Turkey for, you know, a major regional summit. Um, This is an effort to undermine Putin on the way in, to show Russia as a weak nation, to play Russia off against Iran. Um, Iran has drones. They're okay. Uh, Some of them are pretty good. Russia doesn't need them. Russia doesn't want them. Russia is not going to acquire them. Russian troops are not going to be trained on them. Russian troops right now are busy using the Russian drones that are very effective in identifying Ukrainian positions so that Russian artillery can kill the Ukrainians on the ground. This is the reality. Uh, This is just pure disinformation coming from Jake Sullivan, one of the greatest liars in the world. And I don't mean great in terms of being good. I mean, great in terms of this man is despicable. You know, there's an uh, interesting article, RT, U.S. commits on challenges to world order. If Moscow is allowed to win in Ukraine, I'm going to stop it right there. There's this discussion that, that you see in the mainstream as though Russia may, I mean, we don't know how this is going to turn out. Russia may win. They may lose. The, the reality, Scott, is my understanding is Russia's using somewhere between, I don't know the numbers, 15 and 30 percent of their, their military potential. It's not like they've opened up both barrels on them. They're going to win these, this thing. And at some point, this narrative is going to meet reality. Scott. You know, Garland, I'm, I'm a big baseball fan, been one all my life. I never saw Hank Aaron drop a fly ball. I don't think Russia's losing in Ukraine. No. Go ahead, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. Look, uh, 
but I have never mind. <laughs> don't bring up baseball because we all know what the Mets did. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <okay. laughs> but uh, no, Russia is in control. This is you know, I, I try to uh, bring it down to. You know, there, there's something called the OODA loop. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Uh, John Boyd's, mm-hmm. um, you know, a theory of, of getting inside the decision-making cycle of your opponent. And once you're inside, uh, you'll defeat them no matter what. Russia is inside the decision-making cycle of the West, economically, politically, militarily. On the military side, they're so far inside, they're getting unheard of kill ratios. I mean, we're talking 10 to 15 to 1. For every 10 to 15 Ukrainians killed, one Russian goes down. This doesn't happen in modern warfare against nations like Ukraine with an army like Ukraine. So the fact that Russia is achieving this means that Russia is dominating on every aspect of this conflict. Um, And any military professional, I'm not talking about shake-and-bake experts like Max Boot and William Arkin. (laughs) I'm talking about real honest to goodness, military experts know this. I, I can guarantee you inside the Pentagon, there's, you know, smart majors, lieutenant colonels and colonels telling the generals exactly what I'm saying and that there's nothing that can be done to turn this around. Nothing that can be done to turn this around. And so, you know, Russia is what, and I, and I, <laughs> I love that Russia may be allowed to win. Russia ain't asking permission. <laughs> um, you know, Russia's winning. Uh, we've been trying to deny them this victory. Uh, Russia's winning. The only way Russia loses this is if they uh, falter on the political front. Um, I, I said this in 2006 when Israel was fighting Hezbollah. I said, Hezbollah wins by not losing, meaning all Hezbollah has to do is stay on the battlefield. Even if Israel kills 10,000 uh, you know, Hezbollah fighters, uh, as long as there's one Hezbollah fighter on the ground, standing tall with a Katushka rocket ready to fire against Israel, Hezbollah won that war. And Hezbollah won by not losing. Ukraine wins by not losing. And what I mean by that is if Russia falters, if Russia accepts a ceasefire, if Russia somehow slows the pace of operations so that this perfectly oiled machine it's got running on the eastern front, uh, falters, stops putting the pressure across the board, the kill ratios drop, you know, to four to one, to three to one, um, Russia has lost the war. They didn't lose the war by getting defeated. They lost the war by not winning. And so I don't see Russia taking their foot off the accelerator. I don't see Russia uh, pausing to ask the West, hey, what do you think we should do? (laughs) Russia doesn't care. Russia's winning. They're going to win. They're going to win on their terms. Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There is an interesting piece in Asia Times entitled Disintegration of 
unipolar world begins. The only sensible course of action for the U.S. is to collaborate with China and find mutually beneficial outcomes. In April, the author was invited to speak about the U.S.-China bilateral relationship. For the title of the speech, he chose, Pushing China's Head Underwater Won't Make American Great Again. Recent developments suggest that an update title would be Pushing China's Head Underwater Will Hasten America's Own Demise. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He is a uh, writer. He's an activist. He is a uh, chemical engineer, and he is the author of this piece, George Koo. As always, George, welcome back. Hey, thank you, folks, for inviting me back. Great to talk to you. So you say there are two reasons for fine-tuning your title. What are those two reasons? Well, one of them, pushing China's head underwater, has clearly shown that it does not work, and it just makes everything more costly for the American public. The second thing is that what the U.S. is doing on the international scene is winning, increasingly winning more and more disrespect from the international community, from the third world countries, from virtually everybody, because of the, the bumbling in, uh, uh, inefficiency, ineffectual um, things that the Biden administration has been doing. You know, uh, George, one of the things um, that I, I thought about reading reading your piece is, um, in, 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 in a broad on, in a broad way, is the first rule of conflict: never underestimate your adversary, and that's what this is all about. The U.S. has overestimated their power, their economic power, their military power, thinking that they could just grind, they could tell Russia what to do, that economically they could just crush Russia. And also with China, arguing that they were so powerful that they would just tell China what to do and China would cower in their presence. This tremendous overestimation of economic and military power. And now um, they it, it has been exposed in overestimating their power and trying to play their hand, it has been exposed that they don't have that strength. George. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually embarrassing in terms of how inept they have been. I mean, they, 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 they're sort of playing, the playbook is sort of like it was maybe 20, 30 years ago during the height of the Cold War when U.S. can intimidate anybody that's not aligned with, with, the, with the West. But Things have really, really uh, changed, and it's just not, you know, not true anymore. And how Putin has been able to blow back on the sanctions imposed on them really exposes the weakness of the uh, U.S. approach. And by that, I mean how he, you know, when you sanction me, okay, I won't sell my oil to the Europeans. I'll sell it elsewhere. By creating the shortage, the price of oil goes up. By demanding that I get paid in rubles, it kind of, kind of shows that um, the value of the ruble is more more uh, more real than the value of the dollar. You know, as a result, the ruble to the euro has um, reached a seven-year high because everybody now realizes, hey, 
if you you know if you're gonna buy if you're gonna buy from Russia, it's gonna it's gonna take real money, Russian money, and that's just one of the um, embarrassing blowback that's happening with the foreign policy that Biden administration has imposed, and it clearly shows a lack of a forethought. They don't think about what happens if the other side reacts and how do you react to their reaction. None of that uh, is involved in their thinking. And it just, it just, again, I hate to repeat myself, but it really shows how inept Washington has been. They're losing it with every step and every move they make. In following along that same uh, mindset, you talk about American inflation and Biden blaming the war in Ukraine and blaming President Putin and urging Americans to endure this for as long as it takes. And you you go on to explain that uh, Americans really don't understand what got us into this mess and that you you quote Lloyd Austin explaining that the war meets the objective to wear down the strength of Russia. And that doesn't seem to be working right now. Uh, that's right. It's wearing it's wearing out the poor Ukrainian people because they're taking the lumps. They're getting killed. The properties are getting destroyed. Um, the refugees are in the flooding all over the place. And some of the women refugees going to Poland are getting mistreated. It, you know, all of these things are so unnecessary, but was caused because we successfully got NATO to egg Russia on and to start this conflict. So now, you know, we're we're doubling down in many, many different ways. Or I should say Biden administration is doubling down in many ways. They don't seem to get the message that's not working. For example, they have just declared uh, a sanction on goods made in Xinjiang as if there's a real, that was going to really cure the real or imagined human rights problem in Xinjiang on the Uyghurs. Well, even if there was a human rights problem, by sanctioning products made from Xinjiang, it just means that it's going to be harder for Uyghurs there to make a a decent living. But they haven't thought about the next thing. What if China decided all their rare earth metals are made in Xinjiang or at least stamped (laughs) as such? And, you know, what do you do then? I can see, I can see the American Congress protest and say, "Hey, that ain't true. We demand to send a team to Xinjiang and investigate and prove that not all rare earths are made in Xinjiang." Can you see how ridiculous that is? The Chinese may say, "Oh, by the way, while you're in Xinjiang, why don't you visit the prison camps and and, and certify and confirm how many Uyghurs are in these prison camps?" You know, the whole ludicrous just gets to be more and more ludicrous. And on top of all this, just think of another possibility. Just think, if they, the Chinese learn from the Russian, from the Putin administration, what if they all of a sudden decide, from now on, everything made in China, exported to the U.S., must be paid by the renminbi. We don't take dollars anymore. <laughs> what would that do, you think? <laughs> There's another one uh, article I'd like to touch on. It's in antiwar.com. China says Southeast Asian nations shouldn't be used as chess pieces in power rivalry. Here's what I have to say. The, pe- the, the people 
in Europe should say, yeah, we're a witness to that. If you look at what's happening in Europe, they're being used as chess pieces and their economies are being annihilated. And I I understand what China's saying. You know, they're saying, look, let's let's. But but here's the other problem. That's all the U.S. knows how to do. That's official U.S. policy. Try to overthrow governments and use other countries as weapons against other countries or punish the countries that want some level of independence. And unfortunately, the countries that even don't even want in, independence with the European countries, they're just being sacri- they're being sacrificed in the same exact way that the lives of the Ukrainians are being thrown into the meat grinder. George. Yep, yep. And and it seems that there's only one play in the in the playbook, which is to sanction those that are against you, to get everybody to be, to act as your proxy because because you, as as a the hegemon power, are really not as strong as you like it to be, and people, all the other countries can see you're not going to willing to risk your troops. Troops, you're not willing to risk um, your economic power to to fight the battle. You're hoping that everybody else will, and the, certainly the EU countries are beginning to realize that. What's in their interest, which is to get cheap energy from Russia, is not in the U.K. or U.S. interest because they want to sell their energy at higher prices. So right right then and there, the EU is beginning to see that it doesn't make any sense to follow the U.S. lead. Now, about the Asian countries, well, the Asian countries have been trading with China for for a long time, and they know that the you, the China relationship is the most important one, and they're not going to be so stupid as to fall in line and and tell Anthony Blinken that you know, okay, where do we sign up? What do we do? How do we line up and become hostile to uh, to China? And you can see that you know the um, the president of Singapore, for example, Li Xianlong, is very very careful stepping in between lines and just basically say to the Americans. Yeah, we'll, we'll friends. We'll let your navy come in, call into our harbor, but uh, we we also value our relationship with China, and we're not going to go to war with them. The, the only exception I see here, and they're not, and it's it's not an Asian country. It's Taiwan. We we have the DPP, the party in in, in ruling, are completely tilted against mainland China. To the extent that when Abe was shot and, and, and was assassinated, they're one of the few places that lowered their flag half-staff one day, which was incredible to me. You know, it's practically saying, you know, hey, Papa Abe, we're sorry that you're going. We miss you. It it's, has no pride of, it, of their own nationality whatsoever. And that's the influence that uh, the U.S., has in Taiwan, and of course, um, it remains to be seen if Taiwan can be successfully egged on and become another proxy to uh, to start the second front proxy war for the United States. And um, you know, already, I think the sentiment in Taiwan used to be 60% of the people in Taiwan thought and believed that the U.S. would come to the Taiwan uh, Taiwan war if if the war breaks out. Well, that sixty percent after the Ukrainian experience is down to thirty percent, and um, 
Um, and even the DPP leadership, I don't think that they want to step over the red line uh, unless they have a, a plane ready to go for, for them to jump on and get the heck out if the, if the hostilities were to break out. The general wisdom is that if, there, if the conflict breaks out between the man in China and Taiwan, Taiwan would not last more than two weeks. That's what they're facing. They are so foolish as to listen to the um, U.S. line. And quickly, we have just about a minute left. Is that mindset impacting the practical politics of the DPP in Taiwan? It's hard to say because they say one thing, but, you know, it's, they may be paddling like crazy under the water in, the, in, a, in a different direction. But certainly um, they're welcoming big VIPs from the U.S. Okay. They are, uh, they are nodding and, and, and agreeing with whatever um, the U.S. State Department tells them. Mm-hmm. Um, but when push comes to shove, given the people of Taiwan's sentiment, which is have no stomach for, for any actual firefight with the mainland China, they would be foolish to go against the, the wishes of the people. Uh, I'm really doubtful. George Koo, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you, guys. It's nice to be talking to you. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Sputnik International reports Liz Truss promises tax cuts from day one as rivals of favorite Rishi Sunak vie for number 10 Downing Street. Yesterday, the chairman of the Backbench 1922 Committee, Sir Graham Brady, announced a timetable for the Tory leadership contest, triggered by the resignation of Boris Johnson as UK Prime Minister and Conservative Party leader. Brady confirmed that final results will be announced on the 5th of September. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist, Ted Rawl, as always, Ted, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So as the race to replace Boris Johnson as Conservative Party leader and prime minister kicks off today, the emphasis has fallen firmly on each candidate's tax policies. Launching her bid yesterday, Liz Truss, the U.K. Foreign Secretary, who is terrible in geography, by the way, vowed to cut tax from day one in office to help people deal with the cost of living. Your thoughts, Ted Rawl, because I don't know that taxes are really the problem that people in Britain are having. No, uh, you know, the people in Britain are having the same problems that uh, people throughout the Western world are. Uh, Prices are rising, incomes aren't rising quick enough to keep up. And, uh, and so people are, are falling behind, not to mention housing and food prices are just absolutely crazy. And the economists uh, have this whole thing where they think that's not actual inflation. That's not base inflation. That's like something else that's like off the books, like the Iraq war. So, uh, yeah, no, it's 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 kind of like a, a throwback 
to early Reaganism. Uh, you know, Reagan took office at a time of uh, after years of uh, inflation that became stagflation. Uh, that was a major reason that Jimmy Carter lost his 1980 re-election campaign. And Reagan said that the people needed a tax cut. And he did say, in part, in order to you know make up for inflation. Uh, you know, the government certainly can cut taxes. And if they do it by cutting back on militarism and other stupid stuff, God bless them. That's great. Uh, I hope they you know give most of the tax cuts to the working class who normally don't get them. But that's not going to do anything for inflation. Inflation is a monetary policy issue. It's a central bank issue. Um, it's a it's a foreign exchange reserves issue, and of course, it's uh, you know energy policy, Russia sanctions, all that stuff. So uh, yeah, it's not going to do anything. But I guess it's going to sound nice. Uh, I think the real problem for the conservatives and the Tories is going to be, uh, you know, when they when the next time there's a they have to call an election. Uh, which I, has, I think has happened next year, if I'm not mistaken, um, that or sooner. That's when they're going to have a real issue because you know Boris Johnson is the Donald Trump of the of uh, Toryism. He sucks all the air out of the room, and there's kind of like no one else who can really come close in terms of charisma. The other thing I think it demonstrates is the, this this crisis of the elites that we have in the West, where there's a crisis, and the elite ruling class that's in power now is incapable of handling the crisis, and the issue is. At some point, the people are going to figure that out. And I think it's when it's like this November when people are like, oh, things are going to crap. So we're going to the, the, the Democrats will win. Well, put the Republicans in and then you put the Republicans in it, and then you wake up at some point and go, wait a minute. There ain't no way out of this. No matter who we put in, we get the same thing. And I think at some point in the UK, as in other countries, they're going to realize that you know, that the, the elephant in the room is the Russia sanctions. But because whoever the political class, anyone from the current political class will support that at some point, they're going to go to Liz Truss or whoever the next person is. And one day they're going to wake up and say, we're still headed downhill. Uh Oh, what do we do? And I think that's when things start to fall apart. Ted. Agreed. Although there are some interesting uh, early voices uh, among the uh, elites, for example, Foreign Policy magazine, not exactly uh, a harbinger of left wing socialist thought, uh, recently had a really excellent, very well written piece about uh, about the Ukraine war and saying that, look, it's time to get real. Uh, you that you know, Russia's winning. Ukraine's losing. The West needs to accept that. And that diplomacy is the next step, and you know that talks have to ceasefire, and ultimately peace talks have to be held, and that uh, you know it's it's time to understand that you know Ukraine's not going to get Crimea back, it's not going to get the Donbas back, at least not as a formal part of Ukrainian territory. I mean, maybe technically Ukrainian territory, but not in fact on the ground. And there's, um, you know, it's it's interesting when you see those kinds of divisions in those kinds of publications. There are definitely people, uh, you know, who's, who can sort of see the, the obvious future. Um, but, uh, you know, the other thing is I just want to sort of observe about the inflation thing is if there's anything worse than an inflation crisis, it's the crisis that's caused by anti-inflation response, mm. which is usually involves uh, stop, stomping, plunging the, the uh, a country and economy into a deep recession or worse, uh, because inflation by itself isn't really a bad thing. A little inflation stimulates consumer spending. Uh, if you know that things are always going to be more expensive later on, it's to the consumer's advantage to buy this, that object today before it costs more later. Uh, also, inflation's good because it encourages real estate investment. You buy 
you buy a house now at a, at fixed rates, you're paying, you know, 29 years from now on your fixed on your fixed 30 year fixed, you're paying back money that you you know it defl- it inflated money that you're earning hopefully or hopefully you're earning more, uh, and then able to pay it back later. Uh, deflation is far more frightening. That's the Great Depression. That's 25% unemployment. That's catastrophic, and it's almost impossible to get out of. And to your point, Liz Truss promising uh, to cut taxes, but in this is not a supply-driven inflation. So cut taxes, you put more money, you theoretically put more money into the economy, that's only going to cause more inflation because now you have more money chasing non-existent goods. So uh, that's similar, certain to to what the uh, what the what the Fed is is doing here. Uh, Liz Truss being one of those running uh, to be prime minister and head of the conservative party, she says that. Uh, as the next prime minister, she can lead, deliver, and make tough decisions. While touting her experience as a Brexit negotiator, I don't know that that went too well. Trade and Foreign Secretary, while on the stage with Sergei Lavrov, she did not perform very well. Who helped slap sanctions on Russia? Well, that those sanctions seem to be what's driving a lot of the inflation. So... Help me out here, Ted, but I, I, I don't know that she understands what's going on. No, it doesn't sound like it, not very much. And, uh, you know, just one, just like a side, I think tax cuts can stimulate the economy, but not the kind that conservatives or Tories are going to try, uh, which are going to be directed at the rich, not at the rich and not at the at corporations. I mean, you know, if you, if you transfer, you increase taxes on the wealthy, Tax cuts can help, but right now, because this is not, this is a, this is, the problem is there's nothing to buy. There, there's a supply chain problem. It's not that you have too much money chasing too few goods. You have money chasing no goods. That's very true. And, and there's not even any place to park it because interest rates on savings are so low and uh, the stock markets are so volatile, and even weird stuff like crypto is completely unreliable and, and, and all over the place. So it's hard to park money. So all that stuff's true, but I'm just gonna just, you know, uh, I don't think the, look, it's gonna be, it is interesting because the, uh, Boren, the Boris Johnson resignation um, seems in many ways to create more problems than it solves. And I, I wonder if, you know, it's, this is another one of, to bring up my second Iraq analogy in the same segment. Is this another thing where it's like, well, we got rid of Saddam and he, he was bad, but like, oh, my God, not having Saddam is worse than having Saddam. Um, you know, maybe it's worse to not have Boris from the standpoint of the uh, Tories. There's an interesting article in the Saker. Looking back and f- looking forward with a yellow vest, admit the truth. The euro has totally failed in its promise to bring about prospect and economic security. Actually, it's delivered the opposite of prosperity and economic security. The European Union has totally failed to act in a democratic manner. And they say this from the perspective of France. Ted, what say you? So there's the European Union, the, uh, which is the political union. And then there's the euro, the common currency, which uh, every country ex- in the European Union, except Great Britain, had adopted uh, before Brexit. And those two, by the way, making uh, England look pretty good in the aftermath. Um, and, you know, th- there's been, aside from some 
minor bureaucratic conveniences, like the fact that uh, if you're you know, in the Czech Republic and uh, you can easily seamlessly get a work permit to work in Germany, um, or you, know, you can invest uh, across lines, or you can drive from Belgium to France without stopping at a border checkpoint, all nice things for sure, um, but they have uh, radically curtailed sovereignty um, there's been, and not to mention, you basically have this, it's sort of like a, if you think about 15 or 25 or 27 mountain climbers all tied together by a rope, when one falls, uh, you know, he, he or she pulls everyone else down. And we've seen that happen a number of times in the history of the Euro. And I think that's fundamentally the problem is that you can never isolate any kind of economic calamity. And unless you were to say you have a political union where Europe is one big country, and let's say Belgium is, let's, let's say Belgium's having problems, well, you know, they're, they're a state and, you know, the Europe nation can all pitch in to help, uh, to help uh, you know, to help that country or now that province or whatever, whatever you want to call it. But they don't have that. So it's neither, neither beast nor fowl. And of course, it's completely undemocratic. But, you know, that's that's to be expected these days. There's a we were just talking about this piece in the Saker uh, postscript looking back and looking forward with the yellow vests. There is an interesting line here. The yellow vests is not only in Paris or in France. Discontent is international. The poor, the young, the old, so many sectors of society are doing poorly because of a lack of humanity in our social and economic policies. I think that's an incredibly poignant statement. And we are, I think, are looking at the beginning of demonstrations of discontent, whether it's Sri Lanka or whether it's uh, farmers in Denmark with tractors pulling airplanes, folks in Belgium protesting NATO, all of this centering around basically the United States sanctions regime and the impact that that's having on global economies. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's funny. I think this. I, I thought the sanctions were extremely um, uh, poorly thought out for a variety of reasons. But uh, even I had no idea it was going to be really this bad. I mean, and this quick. I thought the West was going to start to see the consequences. And if you guys remember. That was the expert prediction that any kind of really tough consequences were going to hit Europe uh, and the West this this winter. Uh, so, you know, mm-hmm. November, December, January, that's when we were really going to see some pain. I mean, you know, this just happened. I mean, the, the sanctions were imposed in March and we're in July. And I mean, if it's this bad now, what's going to happen when uh, energy production or energy consumption uh, soars uh, when the weather turns cold in, in northern Europe? There you go. Ted Rawl. As always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Judge says officials like Kavanaugh, quote, should expect, end quote, public protest. The trans 
Transportation Secretary was asked about protesters gathering at a Morton's Steakhouse where the Supreme Court Justice was dining two days after Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh fled abortion rights protesters at a Morton Steakhouse in D.C. Chastin Buttigieg, husband of Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, tweeted his assessment of the incident. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. She's the principal and founder of TML Communications and Business columnist at Metro Philly, Teresa Lundy. As always, Teresa, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. Quote, sounds like he just wanted some privacy to make his own dining decisions, end quote. Chasten Buttigieg wrote, alluding to Kavanaugh's recent vote to overturn Roe, the 73-court decision that guaranteed abortion access. Uh, well, I say, Teresa, if you can't stand the heat, get out of Morton's. Um, here's one thing. I believe that people now believe that they were set up. Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham, they used to rail against activist judges, judges who would legislate from the bench. That was the worst thing that could ever happen uh, in the judicial system in the United States, according to according to McConnell, McConnell and Graham. The Federalist Society handpicked Kavanaugh, Coney Barrett, Roberts et al. Kavanaugh and Coney Barrett lied during their confirmation hearings regarding Roe, saying it was settled law. So, Teresa, now folks are angry. They've been hoodwinked, bamboozled, and led astray. Your thoughts, Teresa Lundy? You're absolutely right. I mean, this is obviously a flip on the conservative um, party as they talk about, you know, upholding the integrity of the court. When, again, we have conservative uh, lifetime appointments of these Supreme Court justices, obviously giving their personal opinion versus applying the law. So I do agree, you know, that um, Buttigieg uh, and his uh, husband um, is very clear, like, you know, it, you know, in terms of um, overruling, you know, people thought that these appointments of Kavanaugh and Amy uh, Barrett were obviously unjustly put on the bench. And now we're seeing the ramifications of those moments. And we're seeing it not only in uh, present day, but also in real time. So we can't expect, you know, Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh to, you know, also back away from this. We need him to him and the rest of the judges that uh, voted conservatively against, you know, this ruling that, again, um, the fight has continued for decades on end, but it did not need to be overturned in the way that it did. You know, I have a lot of, you know, confusion and mixed emotion over all this stuff because there's the issue of the individual judge, right? The Kavanaugh, the whoever, right, that agrees with you or doesn't agree with you or the rulings. But then there is the other side that there's systemic issues that we're talking about here in that, you know, how did this happen? How did it come about that the the um, the Supreme Court came so packed in one side over the other? And what are the options? You know, there are certainly changes that can be made, um, but you'd have to do away with the filibuster. You'd have to realign the Supreme Court and make it. You know what I mean? There are not to me. There are so many issues that I 
I'm reticent to say this particular individual, because I can tell you right now, if you let the Republicans pick the judges, <laughs> this is the outcome you're going to get every single time. So then there becomes a big discussion about the system, if you know what I'm talking but, about. But Garland, under normal circumstances, and I think up to a certain point in history, I think you were right. But the problem that I see that we're facing now is folks have been set up. They have rigged the game with the Federalist Society, picking judges. You have to now meet a particular ideological criteria in order to be nominated. And that criteria from the conservative side is overturning Roe v. Wade. They've been working on this for years while telling us we can't have activist judges. So you've got Mitch McConnell and you've got Lindsey Graham lying to everybody saying, oh, no, the game is fair. We want all we want is fair judges. And while they're b dealing from the bottom of the deck. Teresa. Agreed. I mean, what else are we supposed to do, you know, as the American people? We do not stand up for what we believe is right if we don't call out what we see is wrong. Um, but again, we also have to, you know, understand that the powers that be, you know, those are that are in the majority party, um, those are the president, you know, they have to also make the, the right decisions um, and also block some of these uh, issues. So now uh, that, you know, the decision has come from the Supreme Court, now it looks like the decision is really being made up of the state. The states are now taking it in their hands and saying, you know, this is how we're going to run our state. And unfortunately, you know, this it, it seems like the divided states of America when these type of decisions are come down, because now it's putting more power into the governor's hands. You know, there's also this new development. Uh, I don't know if you all saw this, that shut down D.C. Is, pro is promising a bounty of $50 to anyone who provides a confirmed sighting of Supreme Court Justices Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch, Coney Barrett, or Roberts at any D.C. public space, and they'll pay you $200 if they remain at that location for half an hour. So it really seems as though, at least as far as shutdown D.C. is concerned, they're using technology to track these folks, and when they show their faces in public, it's on. Uh, let me say something real quick. I'm against it. It scares me. And I'll tell you why. Because there's crazy people out here with what happened to Shinzo Abe. I completely think he's a mad, far-right-wing, crazy person. But, you know, to with people out here doing violent things, I am very wary to facilitate people approaching famous people in public because they're just crazy people. I mean, they're shooting random people. That scares I don't, me. I don't debate that with you, Garland, in the least. I it would, would never advocate physical violence towards these individuals, but bring it. Te uh, that, bring it. That's that's uh, uh, short of short of violence. Yeah, but there's crazy people. And yeah, you don't well, know they who got, yeah, well, they got, the they got crazy people on the bench. Teresa. <laughs> Yes. What's the question? I'm sorry. Oh, well, you know, I was just saying, uh, OK, so what I was saying was the idea of confronting and tracking and confronting various uh, SCOTUS people uh, or, or politicians that you disagree with in public. I'm wary of it because there's a lot of crazy people out here and I'm afraid somebody might say, yeah, there you go. I'll just go stab judge so-and-so or something crazy like that. That's what scares me about it with all the shootings and the craziness going on. I agree, but unfortunately, we can't. Uh, every individual has the, the the right to feel how they're going to feel, 
Um, if you, you know, I mean, we have to look at, you know, some of the rhetoric that has been gone out since Trump was president, right? And how many emerging psychopaths has been coming out of the woodwork since then? Um, and also see how many threats against elected officials um, that come out to say they've been threatened, i.e., you know, the the Fab Four from AOC, you know, um, for Presley. And these congressional leaders have been getting the same threats, but guess what? They're still alive. So it's unfortunate that we have to, they, they're in a state of fear. But again, it, it is also encompassed of, to thyself to make sure they also have those protections um, to make sure they're safe and their family safe is also readily available. I'd also say to the members of the court that are feeling threatened when they go out in, in, in public, then maybe if your if your fear is of getting shot, maybe you shouldn't have overturned the law in New York that uh, that that required people to show cause for having concealed and carry permits. You have now just let more people out on the street carrying concealed weapons. Well, maybe if you're sitting in Morton's and somebody rolls up on you packing, uh, you might not have wanted to make that change. Uh, Judge blocks Arizona personhood law aimed at criminalizing abortion. Uh, Arizona's personhood provision was crafted recklessly by extremist lawmakers in their harmful quest to eradicate abortion access in the U- in the state, according to the ACLU of Arizona. Teresa Lundy, your thoughts? Yeah, I, look, I think what's happening in Arizona is, uh, is again, where everyone's pushing the needle to how much they can go and how much they can say about um, what is uh, the right uh, age of conception of life, right? So this battle has been going on for decades about, you know, is it right um, of conception? Is that life? Is it when the egg connects? Is it the fertilized? So there's so many trying uh trying of clarification of what uh, should happen um, or how it should be constructed. But listen, the judges are doing, you know, what they choose to do. And in this course, it looks a case. It looks like they um, blocked it out. Um, And, you know, I guess we're just going to, I guess we're seeing it now to see, you know, what that looks like. But it also seems like since the Roe versus Wade was overturned, this is also, um, uh, just kind of where we are at this point. Do you advocate doing away with the filibuster to um, to make the changes, um, codify Roe v. Wade in light of the reality that the Democrats right now seem likely to lose the Senate in November and they would immediately be on the bad side of, you know, they'd be on the underside of that, uh, you know, of that filibuster if they do away with it now. What are your thoughts? I don't think they should do away with it. I think um, they just need to think a little bit more strategically on um, the workaround as in other uh, um, judges and other uh, Senate leaders have been thinking about the way they want to go about it. But no, I think we should leave it as is. And, you know, I would say, Garland, at this point, I think the basis of your question is that you're right. But had the Democrats done it earlier in the game? And been able to deliver to the people the things that some of the things that Joe Biden had promised, they wouldn't be staring down the barrel of a gun right now and and, and, and probably in line to lose the Senate and the House. Uh, they waited too long, as they tend to do. They they, they they waited too long to play the game. And now they're going to figure now they're going to see how the game gets played. Teresa. 
Agreed. I mean, if, if there was a forward taking approach, you know, instead of just thinking about, oh, let's get Trump out, um, but a more forward taking approach, just, you know, a part two, if um, Trump d- did get reelected for another term, um, then I think we probably wouldn't be in this situation because it seems like the conservative movement has definitely made their part two very clear. And we're now seeing it roll out in the next term. Well, in this term, really. And as we get out, one of the things I think is going to be very important for people to pay attention to is turnout in these uh, in these midterm elections. Low turnout will give a real indication about just how disgusted the electorate is uh, with those that are currently uh, in power. Teresa Lundy, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. You as well. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. President Putin is traveling to Iran next week. He'll visit Iran, according to the Kremlin, a day after the U.S. warned that Tehran could provide Moscow with drones for its action in Ukraine. What are we to make of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, analyst, and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. Laith Marouf, as always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So during a trip to Tehran next Tuesday, President Putin will attend a trilateral meeting with the leaders of Iran and Turkey, the so-called Astana front, I'm sorry, format of meetings for Syria-related talks. Uh, His visit to Iran will follow Biden's trip to Israel and to Saudi Arabia. Uh, Laith Marouf, the timing, I don't believe, is any accident. Oh, definitely it is not. You see, uh, Biden is going down to Western Asia to round up all his vessels and try to form a military alliance in the face of the axis of resistance. And uh, clearly, uh, after you know, you pointed out to the uh, fact that there's claims uh, Iran is supplying right now Russia with the drones, this is to strengthen the axis of resistance and attempt to uh, find a way for Turkey to stop its threats of invading uh, North Syria. Um, Because, you know, in in a situation where there's uh, an Arab NATO, quote unquote, uh, that is facing the axis of resistance, you definitely don't want uh, Turkey to also uh, join the fray on the side of the Americans. So this is a, an attempt to at least try to defuse uh, Turkey uh, and make sure that they don't uh, count into the balance of power that is being formed right now in Western Asia. I also see, and RT has that, um, President Putin will be meeting with um, the president of Iran, with President Erdogan, that he's going to have meetings with both of them, meetings with all three of them. And it certainly sounds like what's interesting, I want to your thoughts on Turkey, because Turkey is all interesting in that 
they kind of always play both sides of the fence. Erdogan does. But there, I can see Turkey still having a lot of importance. It's still critical to the Russians. I know the Russians get angry at the Turks at times, but it's still important. And Turkey's still doing business with Russia. Turkey will not go along with the sanctions. So Turkey's in a funny place. Your thoughts on how Turkey fits in? Yeah, I mean, it's a huge country. It's also uh, 90 million population, huge economy. It is, uh, you know, across the, the waters from Russia in terms of the Black Sea. Uh, it's importance in the, um, uh, you know, straits for all the, tr- uh, the trade that Russia has to do through the Black Sea and or movement of its troops. So the least uh, that Putin needs to do is to make sure that the Turks don't take a hardline position that is on the side of NATO. Now, I think this is a a very hard balance uh, because in the end, uh, Turkey is the second largest uh, military within NATO. Uh, We see Turkey continuing to supply the Ukrainians with uh, drones. And this is where it becomes uh, interesting when we hear that Iran is supplying Russia with drones, specifically uh, drones that can fly over 500, 600 kilometers with uh, tons of uh, weapons on them that that will free the the short-range drones that uh, Russia uh, operates to concentrate on the main front while these uh, Iranian drones will be able to hit the back front of the Ukrainian military. So, look, it is a very uh, peculiar, uh, you know, situation. I personally don't think that uh, Turkey could be trusted. We see how it continues. Uh, for instance, yesterday it, uh, it bombed uh, northern Iraq. Uh, you know, but look at what's happening inside Syria. Yesterday, the Kurdish uh, Contras announced that they allowed the Syrian military to move to forward to all the uh, uh, border posts with Turkey, take the frontline position, which means now that they really, Syrian military is for the first time back on uh, the front lines in the northeast of uh, Syria with, uh, with, with Turkey. And uh, so these are all tied together. Um, how all of these pieces are going to, uh, you know, balance and what the end results with will be, we will not know until obviously uh, Biden finishes his visit and Putin arrives, as you said, uh, the day after, and we'll see what comes out of that too. So, so this AP story report in March, Erdogan helped mediate talks between Russian and Ukrainian representatives in Istanbul. Uh, uh, the Russian spokesman said there was no discussion about a new round of such negotiations. Do you think that, well, first of all, do you have any insight into who's calling this meeting and be, as, as it relates to uh, President Putin and, and President Erdogan, uh, do you think there will be any discussions of Ukraine? And also it says in this piece, we, of course, it's being reported that uh, Iran is providing uh, Russia with drones. But this piece says the White House says it believes Russia is turning to Iran to provide hundreds of drones. Uh, it's unclear whether Iran had already provided the drones, 
but there's information. So this whole drone story seems to have a few holes in it. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm I'm not fully sure that this is happening. Uh, obviously, it is in the interest of Biden and the American administration to paint, uh, you know, Iran as involved in the war in Ukraine uh, in before the visit to Western Asia, so they can emphasize why they are going to, for instance, uh, reactivate, uh, as they claim, uh, the sales of uh, offensive weapons to the Saudi military in, in their confrontation with the, the Yemeni resistance. But remember, a few weeks ago, the Iranian president uh, and this foreign minister tried to negotiate with Turkey a end of hostilities in Syria uh, and and try to you know bring together Syria and Turkey uh, to normalize their relations. That didn't pan out. So maybe this is an attempt to bring in a bigger player, and in this case, Russia and President Putin to directly put the pressure on Turkey. Uh, so the the meeting is happening in Tehran. It's on on Iranian territory, basically. Let's see how that comes out. Uh, now, in terms of, uh, you know, will this change things? I don't know. I mean, the, the Turks are in a, in a dilemma in terms of their uh, economy is collapsing. The, the inflation is the highest uh, in all of uh, Asia uh, and Europe. Um, and uh, we don't hear much about it. So what is Erdogan going to have to do to change that? Is he going to accept, uh, you know, peace with Syria and his neighbors and therefore be able to do economic trade again in the region? Uh, you know, Turkey was one of the main hubs of trade in the area since, but that ended with the wars in uh, Syria, Iraq and Ukraine. And or will they fall on the side of the Americans? And what can America offer Erdogan in return um, these are huge questions. We don't have answers to them yet. The other thing I'm looking at, it appears that um, the Saudis have maybe, have, have, have uh, according to some reports, uh, begun bombing, attacking the Yemenis again, that there's been a bombing in a city. So apparently, if these reports are correct, the truce has been broken and the peace is no more. Here's the issue, I think, also. I believe that one of the reasons that they were they brought this thing to an end was because the, the, the Yemen... Uh, army, Ansar Allah, uh, was able to accurately strike a number of um, Saudi uh, oil targets and affect the oil industry. I would imagine that they had plenty of time to re-up their, um, their drones, to re-up their missiles, and that it's particularly with Biden being there begging for more oil, that their first targets will be to return to attacks to the Sa Saudi infrastructure, simply because it was so effective in accomplishing their political goals. Your thoughts, Leith? Yeah, I mean, yesterday the uh, there was uh, an attack by the Saudi military on uh, one of the uh, border towns in Hajjah, North uh, Yemen. Um, almost 200 civilians uh, have been injured. At least 30 uh, somewhat people were uh, were uh, martyred, uh, civilians again. And so this was a very nasty operation uh, to target a little village and target homes in there. And that would have not been, uh, you know, 
a, a random attack that must have come from the uh, uh, higher ups in the Saudi government and specifically targeting this village that is in, in what we could call the Shia region uh, uh, of, of Yemen in the north. So this is a provocation and definitely the Yemenis will be responding. Uh, until now, none of the objectives of the ceasefire have been achieved, whether we're talking about lifting the blockade on uh, you know, fossil fuels, uh, gas and oil coming into Yemen, or lifting the uh, you know, sieges on uh, the north from the highways coming to the south, because many of the families in Yemen cannot uh, see their relatives across. And, uh, you know, the pilgrimage and the Eid, the fest that came uh, after it is over, and the Yemenis have not been able to celebrate uh, the Eid. So none of the objectives of uh, this ceasefire have been achieved. So I believe that uh, the Saudis, by doing uh, this attack, they are instigating a return to hostilities so they can maximize what they can uh, bring out of uh, Biden as he arrives. They're going to, they want actually the Yemeni resistance to hit some significant targets so they can claim that they uh, need a free hand to slaughter more uh, Yemeni civilians. All the players in the region that are uh, within the American um, uh, empire, whether we're talking about the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Qataris, the Israelis, the Turks, they're all vying right now to get as much attention from Biden as he arrives and to achieve as much of their uh, strategic objectives uh, through their maneuvers before he arrives. This is the same thing when we talk about the Israelis and the gas fields of Lebanon. They didn't need to instigate that now, but they're doing it on purpose to uh, guarantee that they can get something more from Biden when he arrives. We have just about a minute and 30 left. U.S. considering lifting Saudi Arabia weapons ban. The administration is reportedly weighing uh, lifting its ban on offensive weapons to Riyadh. You know, Leith, it seems to me when Joe Biden was running for president and he promised to bring an end to the war in Yemen, well, it's really simple. Don't refuel their planes. Don't sell them tires because without tires on their planes, they can't fly. Uh, don't provide them spare parts and don't give them logistical support. Very simple. So it seems to me as though there's a whole lot more to this than uh, Joe Biden saying, well, I want to bring an end to the war. Yeah, I mean, and I personally doubt that they ever stopped selling the Saudis uh, attack weapons, offensive weapons. You see, like the war was continuing up until this ceasefire just uh, two months ago in Yemen. And uh, of course, they were receiving offensive weapons. So therefore, I think it's it's uh, it was all a media play to make uh, Biden look different than Trump. But we know, obviously, uh, history have told us there's no difference between a Democrat and a Republican when it comes to uh, their thirst to killing uh, brown and black people around the world. Laith Marouf, as all, in fact, one might argue that the Democrats are more hawkish in that regard than the Republicans are. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. 
You have a great evening. You too. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. TASS reports Lukashenko blasts NATO West for pushing world order closer to abyss of unwinnable war. The Belarusian leader stressed that in the interest of American hegemony, groups of military forces are being built up and neo-Nazi ideology and openly fascist regimes are being supported around undesirable countries. What are we to make of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher. K.J. No, as always, K.J., welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Lukashenko said that the West's policy is bringing the world closer to the brink of a major unwinnable war. And I'll also throw into that, K.J., looking at what's happening in a number of European countries, looking at what's happening with the with Italy and looking at what's happening in Germany and in France. Uh, politically, it is becoming increasingly more unstable as well. Yes, absolutely. All across the world, things are becoming more unstable. But what what is happening is, you know, first, there is this war that was entered into and provoked with hubris by NATO and the United States. And now, now we're starting to see the blowback, uh, on, especially in the economic field. In the economic area, uh, this war was accompanied by an economic uh, war, sanctions namely, and in, in which uh, all the budgets of the EU nations, the economies of the EU nations, were drafted into this war. And now they're realizing that, you know, there is, you know, that war is a terrible thing and that the devastation that this is already wreaking on their domestic economies is going to be very, very hard to uh, live down. Yeah. And I, and I also think it's uh, uh, interesting that, you know, the thing about Lukashenko, if you study him, is he's very um, blunt. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's very he's one of those type of people. He's very blunt and he's to the point and he, you know, talks about the, the reality. We're talking about neo-Nazi ideology. We're talking about open fascist regimes, which I think it's important to have that discussion because the neocons are very fascist oriented. They're very authoritarian oriented, but they cloak their ideology with a fluffy rhetoric about democracy and rules-based order. And it really hides that they're knuckle-dragging apes. KJ. You you know, uh, there has always been a very, very close interaction, relationship, coordination between fascism and U.S. empire. The neocons are not new to this, but they're just the latest iteration of uh, using fascists and fascism as, uh, you know, their instrument of of control and power. I I mean, the most, uh, the best example that I can think of in the post-World War II era is the CIA collaborating with the Japanese fascists to build essentially a one-party state through the LDP. This was the spooks, the fascists, uh, and and the Yakuza, the gangsters, they got together and they built modern Japan. And now one of their leaders has just passed away, Shinzo Abe. And 
again, this extraordinary whitewashing, this hagiography, uh, and this erasure of the kind of dirty, dirty underbelly uh, of uh, the Japanese government and the way that it served U.S. uh, designs in the Pacific. There's a very interesting piece in Orinoco Tribune, The Deeper Meaning of Ukraine. It's by Alistair Crook. Uh, He talks about this being this this uh, Ukraine situation being grave, firstly, because of that which lies beneath the structural weakness and dry rot that have been accumulating over decades in damp basements. Uh, Talk about this, uh, because this is this is a very, very well written piece. It's a very well written piece. And I encourage our listeners to go directly to the Orinoco Tribune and look for the deeper meaning of Ukraine. But he's absolutely correct. There's structural weaknesses, fundamental contradictions, and what he refers to as dry rot. Well, the dry rot is really, I mean, that's a metaphor, but he's really referring to, uh, you know, neoliberalism, the neoliberalism that gutted uh, productive economies and turned it completely parasitic. And that parasitism, having already uh, gutted to a large extent, the neocolonies turned back in on itself and started administrating the same discipline and expropriation and violence. I mean, that's always been the case, but turning it up to a greater degree such that, you know, since the 1980s, the working class, for example, in the United States has not seen an increase uh, in their, you know, earnings while the ruling class has seen their, you know, wealth uh, skyrocket. And so these are fundamental contradictions, fundamental structural uh, contradictions that have been accumulating. And now, uh, as this house is shown to be a deck of cards, it wants to venture forth and once again revert to, you know, extreme militarism, to, to primitive accumulation to keep itself going. And that is very, very dangerous. And it's, you know, the zombie has, has, is now picking up, uh, you know, a shotgun. This is very dangerous. The other thing is that though they've 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 got a big weakness, a huge weakness, and that is, you know, people compare this to, you know, pre World War One, a lot of different times, but there is a difference here between the others, and that is at the same time that there is instability and that there is confrontation between great powers, the internal economic and political stability of the Uh, of the United States and its allies is completely collapsing. If the U.S. empire is going to start going after other people, they better do it quick because they don't have a lot of months, maybe till next winter. So at the same time that they're like, okay, we're going to confront China and we got to confront Iran and we got to confront and NATO's like, we're going to put together a NATO group to confront people in Asia and Germany. We're going to build a bigger army. Yeah, they better build a bigger army to stop the people inside Germany who are going to tear that place to, to, to pieces, and they're going to be Germans because they're going to be so hungry. So what about the internal rot that's happening as they try to project this confrontational attitude outside? Yes. I mean, the, the, the hubris and the lack of contact with reality is extraordinary. You know, it goes back to that Greek saying, who the gods would destroy, they first drive uh, insane. 
but uh, the internal contradictions, that internal instability, that lack of internal capacity, that internal hollowing out is compensated by greater hubris, greater arrogance, and greater belligerence. You know, how can this be sustained? Well, I mean, I think that it will be sustained by, as has been mentioned earlier, by a greater tightening, a greater uh, you know, buckling down on fascistic uh, methods and also a greater uh, emphasis on, you know, uh, uh, weapons of mass destruction. There's a great point in this piece about the Ukraine conflict is indeed a point of inflection. Uh, they talk about, Alistar talks about the hypocrisy here. Uh, there's a, the New Delhi think tank says there's a Manichaean Occidental urge to see the world in binaries. Uh, we work in shades of gray. Uh, I think that's an incredibly, incredibly important point because it is this it is this hypocrisy that that just uh, above and beyond the actions itself that just drives people crazy. Yes, the hypocrisy is intol intolerable. It's you know it's mind boggling, but also the Manichaean uh, binary. Uh, worldview, you know, that, that this incapacity to understand nuance, to understand uh, the dialectical nature of reality, the ways in which things are neither this nor that, but are complex uh, interaction of these factors. And so once you reduce things to that Manichaean worldview, then you end up with, uh, you know, uh, both an apocalyptic approach and an us versus them, the civilized versus you know, the barbarian, the, uh, you know, democratic versus the authoritarian. You use these binaries uh, to impose uh, a monoculture, a monotheism uh, on the world. And that is very, very dangerous. It has deep roots in Western thinking, especially in, you know, the Abrahamic tradition. But it, there is, there, you know, the world is much bigger and much wider than that. And there's no reason, there's no justification for, uh, you know, imposing this monotheism, this Abrahamic uh, worldview uh, on the rest of the planet. At BlackAgendaReport.com, Danny Haifong has a great article entitled Taiwan and the Making of an Asian NATO, in which he, he argues the United States wants to turn Taiwan into an Asian Ukraine. The goal, and this is so perfectly worded, the goal is to use it as a weapon against China, a country that has been declared an adversary. The uh, 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 and when you, you know, that's perfect. But I do think this, they, I think Taiwan, you know, they're looking at it. OK, good. We can tie China up and with Taiwan and then we can do all kinds of, uh, you know, the same thing. Then we'll do all kinds of uh, various uh, economic sanctions against China, et cetera, et cetera. I do think they're going to have trouble dragging their adversaries into that one. And I do think tai Taiwan is such a different dynamic. I don't think the people into unlike uh, uh, Ukraine. Ukraine, you don't have a bunch of people in Taiwan that just hate China and are ready for a confrontation. I think the people, in, it's a very, very different. You have a small, I think, leadership um, in, in Taiwan, the, in this so-called independence movement or whatever you want to call them, that does not necessarily reflect the greater will of the Taiwanese people. Anyway, your thoughts. Yes, you're absolutely correct. The DPP, the leadership, does not reflect the will of the Chinese, uh, uh, the Taiwanese people who are themselves Chinese. Taiwan is a part of China. It's a province of China. This is acknowledged by the United Nations and almost all the countries in the world. 
But yes, they do hate China. The DPP hates China. And they look like they want to drag uh, Taiwan uh, into a war uh, as a proxy for the United States, just as, uh, you know, has, has happened with Ukraine. A few things to note, you know, the vast majority of people like and want the status quo because it has worked. That is to say that there's been peace and there has been development and there has been massive trade and educational exchanges, cultural exchanges, because they are fundamentally uh, at the core Chinese. Now, um, uh, the, the key issue we can understand that is that the U.S. wants to assert Taiwan sovereignty. That's not something that can be done because Taiwan itself is not, does not acknowledge itself as separate from China. It's inside its constitution. It says that Taiwan is China and they, they have never changed that. And it's constitutionally, they don't have the votes to change it. So the issue is not the assertion of Taiwan sovereignty, but the attack on China's sovereignty by pretending that Taiwan is something other than what it is, a province of China. And by doing so, the U.S. is not only violating every agreement that it has with China, the three communicate, the Shanghai communicate, the fundamental understanding that allows China to have normal relations with the United States, but it is creating a trigger for war. It's crossing red lines and uh, literally creating a trigger for war. China has a law, 2005 anti-secession law, that says that it reserves the right to take uh, military action if necessary under these types of circumstances. The U.S. is pushing this right over the cliff. The Taiwanese don't want it. They are completely loath to get involved in war, in, in battle. They have a four-month uh, conscription, uh, as opposed to, say, Ukraine, which had uh, a year, one and a half years, etc. They just don't want more. And if you go to the, uh, to the ground on Taiwan, nobody ever bothers to mention China. It's a non-issue. It's only in the West and in its uh, you know, informational warfare that all of a sudden China is this incredible threat that everybody has to be afraid of. We have just about a minute left. Danny Haifong writes, the U.S. emphasis on building up military alliances can be traced back to former President Obama's pivot to Asia strategy. I think that's an important point to show the consistency over uh, administrations in spite of party, uh, that this is American foreign policy. It has nothing really to do with the particular individual in the White House. We've got about 45 seconds. Yes, you're absolutely correct. This is a direct continuation of the 1992 defense guidance planning document, then the Bush doctrine, then the Obama doctrine, then the Trump doctrine, and now the Biden doctrine. The names change. The policy is the same. The idea is global hegemony and the takedown of China. KJ No, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. 
According to U.S. News and World Reports, U.S. weighs resumption of offensive arms sales to Saudis. The Biden administration is discussing the possible lifting of its ban on U.S. sales of offensive weapons to Saudi Arabia, but any final decision is expected to hinge on whether Riyadh makes progress toward ending the war in neighboring Yemen. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an investigative journalist and author of three books, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War. Daniel Lazar, as always, Dan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So senior Saudi officials pressed their U.S. counterparts to scrap a policy of selling only defensive arms to its top Gulf partner in several meetings in Riyadh and Washington in recent months. And all of this, of course, as Biden is on his way to Riyadh this week. The international U.S. deliberations are informal and at an early stage with no decision imminent. This is according to administration officials. This is, uh, Dan, crazy to me because first, if the U.S. really wanted to bring an end to the Saudis' attacks on Yemen, just don't refuel their planes, don't give them logistic support, and don't sell them tires. So this really, to me, seems to be as though the United States is negotiating against itself. I know you're absolutely right. None of it makes sense. It's completely incoherent. It's just like all U.S. foreign policy in general. It just doesn't add up. I mean, you're right. The U.S. could stop the war in, in, uh, in Yemen in a second by, you know, withholding, uh, you know, mid-air refueling, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but remember, you know, that when when uh, Mohammed bin Salman launched this war back in 2015, uh, a week later, Antony Blinken, the same guy who's now Secretary of State, flew to Riyadh to assure MBS that America had his back. So the U.S. is equally as responsible for this war as the Saudis are. No, so it's unfair to the Saudis to blame them because they went in there with you know, with, with U.S. backing. Uh, and this has been the story uh, uh, since the inception, since uh, FDR met with uh, King Ibn Saud uh, in February 1945 uh, in the um, Great Salt Lake off the Suez Canal. And the U.S. gave the Saudis a blanket guarantee of security in exchange for oil. And that blanket guarantee of security has turned into a essentially carte blanche for the Saudis to attack anybody they like. And the U.S. will, 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 will cover them as they do so. You know, so it's a, it's a nightmare. It's a, it's the, no, it's a, it's a dysfunctional, if ever there was a, if ever there was a relationship in need of couples therapy, <laughs> it's this one, you know, and, uh, and it just gets worse and worse and none of it makes any sense. And the fact is the U S is, is essentially assembling an anti-Iran coalition. And given that the Houthis in Yemen are essentially Iranian allies, because that's what the U S and Saudis have forced them to do. Uh, the Saudis quite recently say, like, now, well, we need offensive weapons to counter Iran and Iran's ally in Yemen the way you want us to. So why are you holding back? And the answer is that, is that, is that the Biden administration, sooner rather than later, will approve the sale of offensive weapons. It, the whole thing is is just 
sick and demented. Uh, the other thing, Dan, I think the term, I mean, we're talking semantics, offensive weapons. They're, you know, we're not giving them offensive weapons. I remember they blew up a school bus with a Lockheed Martin, uh, um, uh, you know, the, the, the missile had Lockheed Martin written on the side of it. So I guess it wasn't an offensive uh, missile that was used to blow, blow up a school bus. So uh, it's just semantics. The other part is this. Well, wait, wait, wait a minute, real, real quick. When I, go, when I go to the shooting range, mm-hmm. I have to decide, do I want offensive bullets or defensive bullets? Well, every other one. Because <laughs> the defensive bullets are more expensive than the offensive bullets. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> and they, they, they look different. They're shinier or something. Yeah, they are. Um, but here's the thing about it, Dan. Towards the end, I got the feeling that one of the reasons that they were get, the Saudis were backing out was because the Yemenis, maybe, let's just say, maybe they got technological help from Iran, maybe not, but they had a whole lot of missiles and drones blowing the living crap out of Saudi oil infrastructure, and it was getting to be a problem. I would suspect that over the last couple of months that they have resupplied with a number of those missiles and drones, and particularly right now with the weakness from the West regarding that, that the numero uno target is going to be Saudi infrastructure and so much for the oil flowing out of Saudi Arabia. What are your thoughts anyway, Dan? Oh, yeah. I I mean, first of all, as for the Houthis, the Houthis are – because it's a rank and file, you know, rank and file soldiers. Say what you will to the Houthis. The soldiers are, they have got lots of rank and file soldiers who are very good at scrambling over mountainous territory with small arms and carrying hit and run attacks, which they have carried into Saudi territory. Now, the Saudi military is the opposite. They're, they're top heavy with generals and, and, and colonels. They've got lots of shiny jets, but they don't have a single grunt on the ground who's willing to, to sacrifice his life so that MBS can buy a new half-billion-dollar chateau <laughs> in France. You know, so you know, so, so the, the Saudi military is a joke. It's a, it's a, a recipient for overpriced U.S. military hardware. Um, so, so yes, everyone knows that the that they, that they Saudis are at the mercy of the Houthis. The Houthis, Houthis can harass them with all kinds of drone weapons. They can do a lot of damage, and there really is nothing the Saudis can do except drag the U.S. into this fight. Biden falsely claims U.S. troops aren't engaged in combat, combat in the Middle East. He penned an op-ed uh, about his upcoming trip, it was in the Washington Post this past Saturday, where he falsely claimed that U.S. troops were not engaged in combat missions in the region. He wrote, next week, I'll be the first president to visit the Middle East since 9-11 without U.S. troops engaged in a combat mission. His, his claim came not long after he updated Congress on the deployment of U.S. combat troops. In a letter to Congress, the 8th of June, he said troops were stationed in Iraq, Syria, and Yemen. Is this just a semantic confusion that Biden can't win along the lines of I'm not going to Saudi Arabia to meet with bin, to meet I almost said bin Laden to meet with bin Salman but I will see him at a meeting while I'm there. Uh, no, I mean the US has combat troops in the in um, eastern Syria, there's no question about it. The US just put a report that, it, that an American drone killed a, a an ISIS leader. Uh, named Maher al-Agal uh, in Syria. 
So the U.S. is involved in, in combat operations. The U.S. is involved in combat operations everywhere. You know, and if, and, you know, and if it's not involved in more extensive operations now, give it a couple of years. I guarantee it will be soon, especially now that the nuclear talks uh, with Iran are essentially dead. So, uh, so and, the, and then the death of those talks essentially opens the door to, uh, to military engagement. So, so the things are very bad in the Middle East. The U.S. is behaving in a reckless manner. And it's, it's arming the Saudis and, and the other Sunni powers against uh, an array of Shiite nations and powers. Um, and so the U.S. is, uh, you know, is, is helping to foment, foment sectarian religious war in the region. And in my book, that's about as low as you can go. Well, there's Nazis in Ukraine that we're supporting, so that's pretty low. You know, either one of them's lower than a, as John Wayne would say, lower than a snake's belly in a wagon rut. <laughs> but that, uh, 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 looking at this, um, the Biden administration, I mean, in uh, in this, you know, there's certainly, um, you know, in their actions in the Middle East, they're certainly stirring up a lot of trouble in potential military conflict. However, here's what's interesting, and I want to throw this in there and get your thoughts on it. A number of... A, the Gulf states are meeting with Russia and China and starting to do deals with Russia and China. At the same time, the Iranians, they're about to meet with Putin. They're, you know, at the same time. So we have this weird conflict where you've got Sunni and Shiite countries that aren't getting along so well, then there's potential for conflict between them. However, it also seems to me that both sides are starting to look east, that both sides are starting to recognize the instability of the American empire. That could be the saving grace, oddly enough. Dan? Well, whether it's a saving grace, I have no idea because an awful lot can go wrong. But, um, but yeah, but the, but the U.S. the U.S. is weak. The U.S. is confused, and everybody in the world, with the exception of a few uh, Europeans, uh, are com- have completely lost patience with the, the double dealing, the double standard, the flagrant hypocrisy of the Americans. Um, and, 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 and then you have the Saudis, who are quite happy to see oil prices high uh, and see no reason, therefore, to comply with the uh, with um, to to uh, to to meet Biden's request that they uh, they they pump more oil and lower and lower prices. I mean, the U.S. the U.S. its 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 behavior, its foreign policy, is so incoherent that they have managed to anger the greater part of the world, and it's their empire is falling apart as a consequence. The Ukraine is turning into a, a major nightmare, a major disaster for the Biden, Biden uh, administration. To that point, Dan, have you noticed that you're not seeing any— the, the, Ukraine's not on the front page above the fold anymore of major, of major U.S. newspapers. I, I've noticed that over the last probably week at least, that you might get an op-ed, but you're not finding— Stories is, is that a signal to you? And if so, what is it signaling? We got about two uh, minutes. Well, it's a signal to me. Number one, that the uh, that there's that there's kind of a you know a, a weariness is setting in. Uh, number two, it means the propaganda line pushed by the United States is just you know it's just getting tiresome 
and counter-effective. What is it? Someone, someone said, the, uh, according to the U.S., the, the conflict in the Ukraine is a case of uh, Hitler versus baby seals, you know, where the Ukrainians are, the Ukrainians are all good and the Russians are all bad. And, and everyone knows that the story is more complicated than that. So, the, so the, 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 the propaganda is wearing thin. The war is going on a long time. Biden will be, have a hard time maintaining arms deliveries at the current level without meeting, meeting with pushback in Congress. Um, and and the, the, uh, the Ukrainians themselves uh, are not doing so well on the political front. Oh, man. It, it, you know, it'll be, it'll, it'll be interesting to see if the story makes its way back to the front page. And if so, what then is the story? Uh, this, uh, who knows? I mean, the story will be that, that Russia is making uh, strong and steady advances. And the Ukraine is just being, you know, uh, outgunned and outfought. That is what's happening. Daniel Lazar, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Swedish electricity prices at record highs as Russia's Nord Stream pipeline closed for maintenance. According to Rebecca Bergholtz, an analyst at the Swedish Energy Agency, there is great concern about the future of Europe's natural gas supply, particularly once winter starts to loom. Shortages are likely to persist, which will result in price volatility. Garland? I don't know how many economic degrees Ms. Burkholz has, and I mean no disrespect to her, but that was not, it didn't take a whole lot of brilliance to come to that assessment. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, former president of the National Economics Association, Dr. Linwood Tahid. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. Electricity prices throughout Sweden have reached record highs, peaking in the southern part of the country, the greater Stockholm, where it has exceeded the SEK 6, 56 cents per kilowatt, rather than the usual July prices around 40 or or 4 cents. Dr. Tahid, this is, I think, the beginning of what is yet to come. I think you're right. Sweden is is uh, perhaps the, uh, the the leader in this. Uh, it says southern Sweden, so that that would be the the more the warmest part of Sweden. Uh, looking for air conditioning, uh, for example, uh, support. But when we get into the winter time, um, you know, those northern northern European countries are going to be hardest hit in terms of their uh, need to create um, to create heat. Uh, Germany is, a, of course, a big uh, importer of uh, oil and gas from Russia. It's uh, the Nord Stream uh, pipeline is uh, under their under their management, 
and uh, Russia uh, some time ago shut down the pipeline for regular annual maintenance. The question is, are they going to um, um, restart the pipeline when the maintenance period of about two weeks is over? Um, uh, but, but uh, you know, Russia still has that card to play of, of just not opening up that pipeline, particularly if it, if it starts to uh, getting, getting into, into the wintertime. Uh, that's going to create uh, tremendous problems for northern European uh, countries, um, uh, which are which are um, most of the countries in the EU that are that are pushing the sanctions. You know, uh, uh, I'm going to relate this to it. There, there's another story where they talk about the the, the neocons in, in the U.S. have this uh, you know harebrained scheme where they want to uh, you know uh, cap Russian oil prices around the world that has you know more holes in it than Swiss cheese. But here's the, let me relate it to what you just said. While the U.S. and its allies in Europe are plotting against Russia to hurt Russia, Russia is sitting there with their finger on the trigger. At any given time, they can just say, you know, we've had enough. Click. Your gas is off. Your oil is off. It's all off. And in about a couple of weeks, it's it. That is it. Game, set, and match. You know, turn the lights out when you leave Europe because it's done. You don't have to turn the lights out. They'll go out by themselves. Well, and let me add one thing to that, because a lot of people in hearing this discussion and reading these stories think of it in the context of heating homes, but it also has to do with industry. and Electrical in, plants. Electrical, electrical plants. And industry, particularly in Germany. And as I, Scott Ritter may have said, or maybe, maybe it was uh, Linwood who said it last week, some of these industries or businesses that wind up shutting down will not reopen. Dr. Tahid. Yes, yes. Uh, the, um, the, the Western, Western economies, uh, the developed world, uh, spent the entire 20th century uh, building up an apparatus based on oil and gas, um, um, fertilizer, uh, industrial production, uh, heating and cooling and so forth. And uh, we find ourselves in the 21st century with Russia being a huge, huge uh, country, having stock, uh, stockpiles of oil and gas that are that are tremendous, now being in the ascendant uh, in in the catbird seat in terms of supplying that necessary, absolutely necessary, resource to the to the West, and the West has um, uh, you know gone on at, at least since 1917 when they had the Bolshevik Revolution. Of, of trying to contain Russia, it now finds itself totally dependent on Russia, what Russia is able to provide in plenty, and Russia is, is uh, in a position to, to determine the price on that. And, and now we've gone into sanctions, uh, and, and, and Russia is, uh, is determining the price as it should. It is the supplier of that, uh, of that good of oil and gas. And uh, Western Europe is very dependent, and it's fine that it that it's Achilles heel. Uh, Achilles uh, heel is what it set up in the twenty twentieth century of being dependent on oil and gas. One of the things I find interesting in this particular story is uh, it says that this happens the the shutdown of the pipeline for maintenance. This happens every year, and usually takes two weeks, but. To listen to the narrative now, this is as though Vladimir Putin just woke up yesterday and said, oh, I'm shutting off your gas. 
Uh, and there were other stories that, along the same lines that we were talking about yesterday, uh, where in those stories it was saying, well, uh, the leaders of these countries have known that this was going to happen, but now they're sitting here crying foul. And as it says in this story, because now the concern is, even though they've, they even though this happens every year and takes two weeks, they're worried that Russia won't turn the gas on again. And, and while at the same time they're they're trying to figure out uh, how to impose greater uh, um, um, sanctions. And, and harm on on Russia, uh, and 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 they're wondering what what Vladimir Putin is is going to do. Is he going to turn the gas back on or not? While you're also trying to to plot uh, how how to hurt him by sanctioning oil and gas, it it is absolutely insane. So why why should I if if I'm Russia? Why should I be sitting back strategizing if we're lucky, looking at Sweden and Finland and they wanting to join NATO? Why should I be concerned about how to invade your country? I'll just freeze you out. Literally, I'll turn off the gas and let you freeze. Uh, yes, I mean, I think I think uh, Vladimir Putin has all of these weapons in his in his arsenal, uh, not just the military weapons, but the economic weapons. This is, you know, uh, we should we should understand that the Russia. Current Russia is not the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. uh, the Soviet Union still, of course, had all of these vast resources and so forth, but they were not uh, capable of of exploiting them, of of doing the drilling because they they had not done the industrial development in those areas. But once they became integrated since uh, the early '90s into the Western economy, they have become essential. Here's another something I, I, I want to get your take on, and I'm sure you can explain it. The euro fell below the U.S. dollar on the Moscow exchange on Tuesday amid fears that the energy crisis will tip the EU into recession. The dollar ruble rate stood at 58.7, while the euro cre decreased to 58.52 as of 1056 uh, Greenwich Mean Time. At any rate, uh, your, your, your thoughts on what does that mean? Well, one one of the things that uh, I guess should be understood is what does it mean when you have these uh, uh, the, uh, currency uh, rates, these co comparable currency rates. So, for example, when the uh, if a dollar is uh, equivalent to two euros, it's never been that high, but just make the math easy. Then, if you're a European, in order to buy something in the U.S. that costs a dollar, you have to get two euros. Well, when the, uh, the exchange rate between the, uh, the dollar and the euro collapses to what it is now, which is about one to one, then if you're European, it only takes one euro to buy something that used to cost two euros, which means that that is, should, should incentivize Europeans to import things from the U.S. So, so, so the dollar becoming stronger relative to the euro uh, should actually help uh, European, uh, excuse me, the American economy export things to Europe, but it also hurts the European economy. So the U.S. is 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 fine with with this exchange rate. Uh, Europeans should be should be looking at this as as more and more of of what they are suffering as a result of being economically dependent on the U.S of going along with these sanctions, which is hurting their relationship with Russia, which in, in oil and gas, which they need. But now without their currency, the euro is, is becoming um, 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 uh, less, uh, um, less wanted. People want to buy fewer things from Europe. 
and want to buy more things from the U.S. So the U.S. in the, in this exchange process is being helped, but Europe is being hurt, and the Europeans have to decide, or probably will decide by by civil unrest and referendum, whether they're going to continue to be uh, a vassal of the U.S. or whether they're going to start looking at out after their own interests. Talk about that in relation to the ruble and. Uh, as this RTP says, the growing anxiety over Russian gas supply has added to pressure on the single currency. Uh, Gazprom turned off the Nord, Nord Stream 1 pipeline. So how does that impact? Uh, because what we what we were told on the front end of all of this was that the United States shank, sanction regime was going to crush the ruble and collapse the Russian economy. And I'm glad I wasn't holding my breath waiting for that to happen because I'd be turned all different shades of blue by now. Well, the demand for for the ruble did initially um, uh, decline when the sanctions were put on. Uh, and uh, the Russian government uh, and, and Putin did a, uh, uh, I guess, a, a very, very smart thing in requiring that gas purchases had to be done in rubles, uh, which meant that the demand for the ruble began to climb because if you're going to buy gas from Russia, you have to, you have to find rubles in one way or another to do that. And so, and so the ruble rebounded to its current uh, state where it's the uh, highest uh, valued currency uh, in, in the world. And so that initial sanctioning uh, would, have, would have worked uh, except for uh, the uh, Russian uh, government re- requiring that gas and uh, probably oil purchases coming Coming soon will need to be in rubles, and so and so the, the Russians have done a smart thing in in terms of of increasing increasing the demand for its its currency, uh, which meant that the the, the sanctions uh, you know backfired uh, from the beginning. Do you? We've got about a minute and a half. Do you think that some of these countries can literally be looking at a Sri Lanka-style collapse, where the country goes bankrupt and you know there's a mayhem, pandemonium in the streets, as it were? I, I think it's much easier for that to happen, of course, in in Europe, where you have a parliamentary-style government, and where you have uh, you know many um, uh, governments can be can be overturned by a vote of no confidence. Uh, if that if that you know that may not be what's, what's happening in Sri Lanka, that may, it may not have been possible uh, for that to happen in Sri Lanka. But in, but in Europe, the safety valve is that you can you can throw the current administration out of office and have an election. You don't have to wait two or four years to do that. But 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 there's there's going to be civil unrest, increasing civil unrest in Europe. Uh, it can either end up in a Sri Lanka overturn of government, or it can or it can end up in a in a new referendum and, and a new vote. But 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 it's it is coming uh, to to Europe. It, it, the, the U.S. of course we have to wait till the next election uh, for that kind of overturn of government. Linwood Tahid, Dr. Linwood Tahid, as always, sir. Thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you, sir. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out.